Inspired in part by Sadia Hartman's Lose Your Mother, Lose Your Sister is a meditation on Black feminist thought and diaspora. Treating pop culture as a text, each week we will explore a different topic, film, show, book, event, scandal, etc. A note on creation. As we set out to build this podcast together as an exercise in friendship, cultural criticism, and diasporic exchange, we find strength in remembering that we come from a history of people who have loved and learned from one another across larger distances than this one. In the words of Saidiya Hartman, I too live in the time of slavery, by which I mean I'm living in the future created by it. Situated in this future, Lucia's sister considers how Black people find their way back to one another, interpersonally, artistically, and politically. Hey Jordan, how are you doing? Hey Liberty, how are you? I'm okay. I'm survived midterms, um, but I'm still. I've got a bunch of stuff to write. But overall, I am good. I don't like the um, cold weather, but it's alright. How are you doing? Yeah, um, I'm okay. I am, you know, adjusting to like fall really coming in and making herself known right now. Mm-hmm. But it's a bit loud at the moment. Yeah, so I'm adjusting to that, and then like like trying to like block out all this election stuff to be oh. honest. I'm really trying to mind my business. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like everybody's blocking it out and I'm like, guys, elections are less than a week. I'm like, especially because I'm not American. I'm like, what's what's going on? <laughs> no, I think we're all traumatized to be honest. I don't think that's that's completely wants, fair. I completely understand that. Anybody, I don't think anybody wants to deal with it. Um, we also like really don't have good options. I mean, is there ever a good option for Empire? No. no. <laughs> but I think um, there isn't exactly even like a charismatic imperialist option. <laughs> so. It's a damn, give me an imperialist option I can enjoy at least, damn. <laughs> oh, so, um, I don't think anybody's too excited this go round. Um, yeah, so I've just, you know, been kind of like sending my little mail in if I feel like it. But for the most part, I'm trying to avoid any and all conversations because um because I I'm not interested. Um uh do you know Jeremy Corbyn, who Jeremy Corbyn is? Yes. He got suspended from the Labour Party yesterday. Well, so I'm in the same vote. I'm like, it's crazy. <laughs> I'm like, it's crazy how I'm not voting in the next election. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I understand just how you feel. Yeah. It's just like the whole thing feels like a joke sometimes. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just and I'm the punchline. <laughs> yes. Like I'm definitely the butt of the joke every time. Yeah. Oh, child. But um, what media have you been waiting for? Okay. Um, so I guess we're going to talk a little bit about what, what I've been waiting through today. But um, Oh, oh yes. yeah. Yeah, technically we're going to talk a little bit about it today. But um, I guess other than that, I finished P-Valley on Stars, which was oh. like really good. Okay, great. Okay, I need to watch that. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um. Uh, it's written by Katori Hall and it was like a play first and it's turned into a show and um, I think it's a really good show um that's a good foundation for a show yeah um and then what else I'm watching oh I finally finished Married at First Sight the like <laughs> New Orleans season it was very good I was like definitely live tweeting and embarrassing myself um but yes I was very um I was happy that the couple I cared the most about, which was Woody and Amani, like one of the black couples, mm. they stayed together. So I was happy about oh, that. Oh, that's lovely. Um, yeah, so that was cute. And then I'm trying to think. Other than that, like, oh, I've been watching a lot of Phineas and Ferb, like, no lie, like a lot of Phineas and Ferb. Um, I don't know. I think I've just been needing like positive, color, like bright colors and like positive energy mm. in my life. As so I was like, you know what? 
I'm gonna just start watching like some of like some like kid cartoons. Um, Anthony's and Ferb has been the one I've been watching a lot recently, but I just recently finished like all the seasons of Kim Possible. So <gasps> I was about to say I need to watch Kim Possible. That's like like that was no. my favorite TV show. It's so me. good, and it it held up really well. Like I think uh-huh. Kim Possible held up really well. Um, like there are definitely moments where you're kind of like, why is Ron rapping? But for the <laughs> most part, for the most part, it holds up really well. Yeah. Also, rewatching it, it's like really obvious that Kim is a Virgo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, like when you rewatch it, you're like, oh my god, like she is such strong Virgo, like Earth sign energy. Um, yeah, but no, I think it, I think it carries well, and I think it's worth rewatching. Um, also, Shigo looks good every episode. Oh, of course, like all the time. Oh, yeah, I really need to rewatch Combustible. Um, I yeah. watched Legend of Korra. Um, oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, because I watched Avatar Lost and Better for the first yes. time this summer. And Same. I absolutely loved it. I was like, how did I <laughs> not know? To be fair, I did have a friend who was like, you need to watch Avatar Lost and Better. Um, and I just never got around to it. But yeah. it's an excellent show. I'm like, not this cartoon. No, actually, no, no, no. Let me not even say that because cartoons are like, a beautiful art form in and of itself. Yeah. I don't know this children's TV show being the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> One of the best. <laughs> Why was that literally me when I finished it? Because I also had people recommend it to me. I think it was either the spring or the summer, but like around the same time you watched it and I was just like, this show is really good. And they oh, were pushing their pen. Like those white The pen. Like Listen, the way the Avatar writers now to write a backstory I'll be sitting no <laughs> like PJs on headphones in crying. <laughs> I really wish the people we were talking about today knew how to write a backstory. <laughs> oh um anyway, so <laughs> Legend of Korra. I said big boobs, child. Anyways, um Legend of Korra, um a lot of people don't like it as much as Avatar Lost Airbender. I feel like the writers continue to push their pen. Um, and I respect that. I respect the the risks and the choices that they made. They decided to like broaden the world that has been established in the previous series. Um, yeah. And Cora is an unlikable character, but she's written that way. She's written to be yeah. um, very, very flawed. So I respect that. I'm on the first season right now. I don't like the first season. I feel like they ran out of ideas and didn't really know what to yeah. do with this one. Yeah. Have you seen yeah. Legend of Cora all the way through? I tried. Um, oh. I was like making my way through. I'm still stuck in the first season, so maybe if I get past it, I'll. Oh, I like I'll the first season. Um, I'm just str- I'm struggling through it because, like, like straight out the gate, Cora just like enters as a very like. I mean, obviously, like you said, she's unlikable, but I wasn't expecting her to be like a cop, and I wasn't expecting like, like Toph to be a cop, and like everybody's all a of, cop. Like, everybody's a cop now. Everybody and, and their mom, like, literally, everybody and, and their mom is a cop. <laughs> Yes, and I was just like, I just don't understand why all of my faves are agents of the state now when they were originally like giving me revolutionary um, moments. And so I feel like I'm just a little disappointed about where they decided to put their their powers. Yeah, and so I think after a while, I was kind of like annoyed with Korra and I was kind of just like, it's giving me legend of Kamala, which is what I was telling my friends. <laughs> So I took a pause, but I will go back because, you know, maybe, maybe it'll impress me. Um, I watched a couple episodes though, and I didn't, I didn't dislike it. I just was kind of thrown because I feel like, I don't know, I feel like the critique, I guess, on this show feels very different than the critique on Avatar. Um, Yes, it's very much like nation, building nation state. Yeah, I don't know. I think like the right, the first Avatar, I think to me, I really liked because it was like a lot about like war and like memory and loss and like... I guess power also and like empire and things like that. Um, but this one feels like, I don't know, a little bit less connected to some of those questions. So I'm trying to adjust to what what it wants to focus on. Well, I, I feel like I knew some of that going in. Um, so I wasn't as surprised. Like I knew Top is a cop. It doesn't make any sense that Top is a cop because the way she used to scam. And she was always in trouble. So my exactly. Like, I'm like, how did this, <laughs> of all the characters, you know who's a cop? Um, What's her face? Um, Katara. Yes, I could. Katara's, Katara's a corp. 
Yeah, I could see her doing that, but it felt so out of character for Toph. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Top is a rebel. She's been a rebel from what, the job. What is that, bitch? Let me talk about my girl real quick. The fact that she <laughs> made a whole new subbending technique as a child. What was she, like 10 years old? I mean... She's a walking life detector. And it's not enough to stand? <laughs> Listen. You about my girl, top baddest bitch in the entire Avatar universe before she became an adult. Are you dumb? Listen. No, she's that girl. She's that girl for sure. Um, that girl. She's, not, she's not seeing these haters literally and figuratively. She's not seeing them. <laughs> no, she's not seeing her. She can see y'all don't even register Listen. to me. <laughs> in the back, like she overtakes Kyoshi for me because Toph was at Kyoshi's level and she was an avatar and she was a child. Who else? Mm-mm. They would have been, if Toph was the avatar, the whole series, all three seasons, would have been five episodes. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I think she would have finished things. Um, she would have done. Uh, often throughout the show, I was kind of just like, if somebody else was in charge, this would have run a lot smoother. Um, but you know, you know, Aang. <laughs> you mean my nephew, Aang? Aang is an Aquarius like me. I've already decided I have stuff signs to eat with them. Aang is, Aqu- is an Aquarius. Maybe a Libra. I'm blessed. He was stressed. Remember? <laughs> One of my favorite parts of the series is when um, he didn't want to kill... What was the um, Fire Nation king's name? Oh. I can't remember, but... When he didn't want to kill him and he kept on going back to all the different avatars and Kyoshi was like, if you don't kill this nigga. <laughs> no, Kyoshi was actually one of my favorite characters because every time she came on, she just was like, yeah, like I'm about that action. Like she was kind of just she wasted like- wasted no time, she was on crud. Yeah. Every single day. It's so funny because like Aang had all these like hangups and like reasons why he didn't want to go there. And she was just kind of like, shoot a shoot. And that was really it. And I I'll tried to go later. for that. Because she was funny. Yeah, I don't know. I think Aang was very sweet, but I think he seemed the most childlike of all of the avatars. And I wonder if that's just because he was frozen all that time. Yeah, he was. Listen, Aang went through a lot. He lost his entire, he was the last airbender. He lost all of his. No, I guess I'm just wondering like if, if things had gone normally, would he have grown? Like, would he have would he have grown up before he like, I guess fulfilled his destiny because like none of the other avatars looked that young. Yeah, yeah, because like all of the other avatars, one lived full life. Well, yeah, full life before they had to become the avatar, and they spent like years training. And I had to do all that in one year. Yeah, he was on the fast track. I'll give him that. He was fast track. Mm-hmm. It was doing a lot under a lot of pressure. Actually, when I was watching, I was like, "Wow, they're putting my nephew for a lot right now." I just love when like Aang grows his hair out because like that whole season I was like oh Aang is looking very light-skinned this season and I was claiming him I was claiming him that season I was like okay like light-skinned Aang (laughs) (laughs) waves and airports (laughs) they shouldn't have given you niggas the internet oh I know they shouldn't have given it to me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay let's get into this um this episode yes okay so i guess do you want to say like what we're talking about this episode Child, we're talking about lovecraft country if i say lovecraft county just ignore me um because <laughs> i've been making that mistake for the past two months. yeah um spoiler alert we didn't like the show so <laughs> if yeah. you are a fan of I it mean- it's, I guess it's more complicated outright than just like we didn't like it. We have we have particular issues, but um maybe you did overall, I didn't like it. I'm sorry. Overall, I I struggled with the show. That's what I'll say. Mm. I struggled with it. We were not in community with one another, but we struggled <laughs> together. <laughs> um Jordan trying to intellectualize it. I'm gonna leave it to Orgy Lord by herself because I I didn't like the show. <laughs> Did, I like to at, at, at the start, but yeah, I I didn't like it. So if you're a fan of the show, we're gonna drag it for the next. I don't know. 
off now 40 minutes so i'm very sorry this might not be the episode for you, uh, so, um, yeah but feel free to like you know reach out and let us know what you thought we probably disagreed but let us know what you thought i would like to know why people would like the show because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's difficult to watch because of fat writing anyway you know what We'll save that for yeah. I mean, let's just let's just give a little rundown mm-hmm. of the show real quick, so that we can you know get into our into our roast section. <laughs> okay, based on Matt Ruff's novel of the same name, Lovecraft Country is an HBO horror series written and executive produced by Misha Green, who was also the showrunner for the acclaimed Runaway Slave series Underground, which appeared on WG in America. Lovecraft Country follows Atticus, better known by his beloved ones as Tick, a Black Korean war vet from Chicago who discovers that he is the descendant of the founders of the Sons of Adam, a magic white supremacist sect. Tick's great-grandmother, Hannah, was one of the founder's slaves, but she escaped while pregnant with his child. Atticus's discovery of his magical birthright launches him and his family into a world of peril, monsters, spells, and potions that serves as an allegory for racism in the United States. An ironic jab at the namesake of the series, H.P. Lovecraft, a titan of American horror fiction and a notorious racist. This show has a stellar cast with Jonathan Majors as Tick, Jenny Smollett as Letty, Tick's childhood friend, Michael Kenneth Williams as Montrose, Tick's father, and Courtney B. Vance as George, Tick's uncle. Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams also produced the show. All right, so <laughs> where to start? Where to start? Should we start with what we liked about the show? Because that would, that would be quick. Yes, and then, yes. Yeah, we can get into... Yeah, let's you. start there. Well, I guess I guess the part of the show that I liked the most is the part that like, you just read off. Um, I thought the cast was great. Cast is um, great. I think That's that great. these are all like really great, amazing actors. Um, and I was super excited to see them do their best and also like see them act with each other. Um, mm-hmm. I think that... I've seen Jonathan Majors in The Last Black Man in San Francisco um, and really enjoyed him in that movie. So I was excited to see him in this uh, just because I think the TV series gives you more time with an actor than like you would get in a movie. So it was, it was really exciting to see him in a longer project. I've always been Journey Hive. Like I've loved her and everything yeah. I've seen her in. Um, I think that she acts um, and she talks very little like she's one of those celebrities who like never embarrasses me because she doesn't talk often she just does her work which I love um more of that celebrity should stop talking (laughs) but um yeah I really enjoyed her for that and just in general I thought the whole cast was really good um I'm also an Andrew Ellis stan who plays Belida um and I think that she's She's just an amazing actress yeah um and she's so beautiful and I just think that she's just like amazing and she was an um I want to say Book of Negroes. I was going to ask what else um, to because I'd love to watch her again. Yeah, she's a Book of Negroes, and then she also was in the um the Clark Sisters movie. Oh, she plays the mother. She plays the mother, and she throws that shoe at them in the choir rehearsal. Uh-oh. And I was like, "That's acting, like <laughs> muscle. That's acting. Like that was like muscle memory. Like she really got into character." Yeah, she for said that. when the shoe comes off. Yeah. Um. And so she did a really good job in that movie of playing like a a very a abusive Clark mother but she's a very loving mother here so right yeah um but she's just really good like she's been on Law and Order she's been on a lot of stuff um but I really enjoy her as an actress so I mean overall I was kind of just like this is an amazing cast which is why I watched the show in the first place Mm. yeah I watched the show because I saw the trailer the trailer was a while back and the trailer phenomenal and Apart from the cast, one of my favorite things about the show is the use of Black um, horror to tell Black narratives. I feel like horror, fantasy, sci-fi is like the best medium to tell Black stories because to be Black in the West is to be in a, in a constant state of surreality. And so I feel like our stories can't be told in like traditional me- mediums because what has happened to us since the transatlantic slave trade, at least like, actually no, the African diaspora and um, Africans on the continent is just so b- surreal and bizarre as well as heinous that there's yeah. no way um you can tell it like with traditional quote-unquote story or just like straight stories and so things like Beloved for example which is an excellent horror mm-hmm. novel 
like the fact that like beloved is a ghost that's real as far as i'm concerned i'm like that's not yeah. the, um that's the least surprising thing about the novel because yeah. it's, it's slavery in and of itself is just incomprehensible that uh ghosts walking into a house and then living amongst people is nothing um yeah so i think like i'm just thinking about um the voices like double consciousness i guess you can also transfer it to like double realities or double dimensions as in black people almost live in like an alternate reality yeah in terms of like what we're going through because our humanity and our history our experiences just aren't acknowledged and so yeah it does feel like we're living like an alternate timeline yeah I mean I think I think there's obviously a a a black horror history that like predates this current moment um in terms of like I mean because you have like you got Eve's Bayou which is giving like a southern gothic um um, and then like you have like like the original Candyman and like those kinds of movies like Mm -hmm. in the past but I would say that I think this current moment we're in is probably like definitely a product of like the Jordan Peele industrial complex like everybody Uh, mm -hmm. is on that wave I think Get Out really kind of told people like okay this is a movie people want to see my only concern is that I'm not sure if people are writing as well as Jordan Peele was writing at least in the beginning I have some like I'm not entirely sure how I feel about us but I think that Get Out was well written and I just think that in general I don't know I think that like everybody is his son these days um illegitimate sons because I'm like (laughs) I do what Jordan Peele's doing but yeah Jordan Peele also produced this show as we said but like yeah I don't know how much he actually was involved in terms of like story because you can produce a show but I don't think he was pardon I don't think he was I think I've seen all the like teleplays and like screenplays for the show were written by Misha Green and in some cases Misha and like another writer um but I never saw Jordan Peele on the list yeah so he could have just like provided funding or connections you know got people with like special effects department or whatnot so like he, he might not have been involved in the creative process yeah i also think that he knows that his name provides a certain cachet so i think yes um, so i think at this point people see his name and they almost kind of like don't even pay attention to like who else is attached to the project because even with the new candy man like the i'm pretty sure it was written by like nia da costa but like everyone talks about it like it's a jordan peele movie and i'm like that's not his movie yeah yeah every single one of these new black horror films that are coming out are literally is illegitimate sons because his name or one of his or one of his films is somewhere in the advertising even if he didn't have much to do with it they'll be like the producer will get out but that doesn't mean Jordan Peele was involved it just means (laughs) that someone from the team (laughs) was involved in the process so yes yeah all of these black horror movies that are coming right now are literally running it off the heels of um get out yeah so yeah okay so what do you want to talk about first? Oh, child. Um, I mean, I guess we could talk about the writing first and like oh, the story cool. itself. Um, that, that was my main beef with the show. Yeah, I agree. I just think that there were some moments where I was just like, one, why? Absolutely. Like, yeah, I don't know. I think I go back to when I was elementary school and like, when like they used to have a little sign up on the wall where it was like, before you do something, ask like, is it kind, is it necessary? Um, And that was something I was asking myself throughout the show was like, is this kind, is it necessary? (laughs) Like, like, (laughs) and the necessary part is extremely important because there was so many friends going on in this TV show. I'm like, how does this make sense? (laughs) And, oh, you know something funny? So one of my roommates is watching the show they're behind okay and every now and again they'll come up to me and they're like liberty could you explain this to me and i'm like baby it's just bad writing they're like i don't understand i'm like there's nothing to understand <laughs> like, just confused <laughs> the writing in and of itself is confused uh, yeah i don't know i think the show really stressed me out in particular because i felt like you was so focused on having a message that it kind of just drop the ball on telling a story yes. that made sense. Um, and I think that that's sometimes what I get a little frustrated about in terms of how people decide to take history into this genre in particular. Um, Cause I agree with you. I think that the horror genre and like the sci-fi genre are like 
perfectly good mediums for talking about Black history. I think there's a lot to be said in terms of like alternate realities and about like, you know, um, pushing the boundaries of human or being outside of human in certain ways. But I do think, um, I do think that should be done well. And I don't think we should be careless with history. And I think that there was a way that, in my opinion, I think the show kind of just like grab bagged a bunch of traumatic events in Black history and was like, oh, we're going to do all of this. And personally, I feel like you could have one entire show about like an Emmett Till type character or like Mm -hmm. Emmett Till himself. I don't know. I think it was a little overwhelming, like just how many references they make to like figures like Emmett Till or even like um, they reference like J. Marion Sims and like all those like enslaved women who were um, experimented on, but they don't, they don't name J. Marion Sims. They like use some other generic white doctor, but they use the women's names, which I thought was odd. Yeah. Um, And I think that just for me, I don't know. I think, I think you have to be very careful with stuff like that. Like one from a narrative sense, I think you overwhelm the audience, but I think it can also do like a disservice to those stories if you just kind of throw them all in in a kind of sloppy fashion. I also think that I have like um, a healthy respect for like my ancestors for the dead. (laughs) And so I think for me, I also like, don't know if I think it's appropriate to like be using people's names if you're not really gonna like do that work properly. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think it just feels a little inappropriate to just be like doing that and to be like talking about like Mamie Clark and like, I don't know, I just, I was just kind of like, you know, if you're not gonna like go there, don't go there. Mm-hmm. Because I just was kind of like, I think that those stories are worth more than what they got. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was kind of, I was kind of thrown by that. They were just stories for like real people who have like family members that are probably still alive today. Yeah. And you're just like throwing their names around. Yeah, that's what, that was my main upset with how Emmett Till was used in yeah. the series. Um, because yeah, the episode, I can't remember which episode it is, probably like seven or eight, opens with <laughs> Emmett Till's funeral, which I thought makes sense because they're in Chicago. Um, yeah. But you find out that Emmett Till was Diana's best friend and Diana's um, Tick, the main character's cousin. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, you can't just drop that in there and then you find out that um he was actually featured in an early episode like episode three and I'm just like yeah you can't just drop that Emmett Till as best friends with one of your characters without building on it and it not being part of the story like what way yeah yeah I just I wasn't a fan of it because I think that there's very little like investment in his character prior to his death so in my opinion, it doesn't really subvert anything. Like we don't learn anything new about him or like engage with like who he was as a person. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, it didn't really elevate like the conversation in my opinion. I also was just kind of like disturbed by the fact that we spend a lot of time trying to make this white woman care about his death, Christina. And then like when Christina decides to like trial run a lynching so that like she can experience what Emma experienced no the fact that she died died quote unquote in the same way so I was like how disrespectful I was deeply disturbed by that scene in particular I think there are a lot of moments in the show where they are very interested in this kind of like what if we like show this like traumatic thing that happens to black people on a white person or like we like flip things and like put a black girl in a white woman's body and stuff like that and I don't think it ever does what they think it's doing like I don't think it ever gives what's supposed to be gave I think it's always just like weird and like I think it always kind of throws me off because I'm just like why do we need to see that but also like it's oddly performative and out of character for Christina's character in general like because she doesn't care and I think that we should be comfortable with showing a white woman who doesn't care because I think a lot of white girls don't care. (laughs) Um, And I think that that's okay. I think that was probably like the most honest part of the show. Although I have several other problems with like Christina and Ruby's relationship. But just like in general, I thought it was kind of weird for them like off screen to try and make it seem like Christina really wanted like to empathize and wanted to like experience it. Especially because there's no follow-up. It's not like she comes back after that experience and is like, 
oh, I'm sorry. Um, do you want to talk about Montrose? Oh, child, I guess. <laughs> I guess we could talk about it. Um, when did we start? Let's song with that, start with that song selection. <laughs> for, the, for the sex scene, you mean? <laughs> so whoever decided to have Bad Religion by Frank Ocean play over two men having sex, two black men having sex. I just felt like they won't, they won't be, be the bloody game. Could you be any more predictable? Like, it wasn't even interesting. Like, the least they could have done if they were going to go Frank Ocean was, like, go deeper into his archive, like, his discography. But, like, to pick Bad Religion of all songs was just kind of like, all right, we get it. They should, you know what they should have done? They should have picked Pink Matter. Mm, that would have been cute. That, but... Yeah, but. I don't know. I feel like their so their choice and selection just made me feel like they were just like, oh, what else is black and like queer? And they were just kind of like, oh, Frank Ocean. And it just was like, okay. And they stopped there. <laughs> it was like, did y'all think about that for longer than five seconds? Probably not. Uh, so Montrose, I think him and Ruby, who we'll talk about later, the defining characteristics of that. Well, the defining issue between them is like colorism and homophobia in the way in which their characters are written. Um, yeah yeah but I guess I mean even in terms of Montrose I mean I think there's a lot to be said as far as his character who is like at once very underdeveloped and then like I think very intensely developed as like um a violent figure on the show yeah, yeah I don't know like what did you think about that because I feel like I I had a lot of complicated feelings about what it meant to like hold him accountable for the harm he caused but also how like it felt like none of the other characters were really being held to account for their violence at the mm. same, to the same extent, which I thought was kind of weird. Yeah, well, I strongly dislike the trope of a man who is violently homophobic because he's in the closet. Mm -hmm. um, because when it's tired, like Hollywood loves that trope for some reason. And number two, like, it doesn't make sense because considering that how many queer people mm -hmm. are subjected to violence, it's a Thai narrative that probably doesn't um, reflect reality. So yeah, I Montrose is definitely held accountable for the how he abused Atticus, but at the same time, I feel like it's very flat because he's just a violent figure. And yes, they give a reason for it that um, it's because he was abused by his father and he had like all this pent up internalized homophobia. But like, I think especially as famous as a dark skinned man, the fact that his character is just aggressive and abusive is like textbook colorism. Yeah, I think that was kind of what most disturbed me, especially because I feel like in some ways, I think that he and Tick are not that different in terms of the fact that they both demonstrate certain like violent streaks throughout the show. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I think what feels different to me is that I think like Tick being like, like because Tick is like a straight man in particular, I think there's a way in which his relationships with women like on the show are kind of used to redeem his violence, like his relationship with Gia and like her forgiving him is supposed to make us kind of like move on from like the particular like imperial dynamics of like him being like a, a soldier, like an American soldier during the Korean War. Um, and there's a way in which like his relationship with her is supposed to make us kind of move past the fact that he was involved in um, this really violent imperial project and his relationship with Letty is supposed to like make us believe in like a certain kind of tenderness from him but I think overall it's kind of like I don't know if it's really demonstrated that Tick sees any problem with like his violence throughout but I think there's like a consistent kind of shaming of Montrose and I think I think that like you know he should be held to account for like abusing Tick as a child but I think it's interesting how much more space Tick is given to be violent in comparison. Mm. Well, I think a good point of comparison would be Yahima. Um, yeah. Yeah, the two-spirit character who's also indigenous that they find. The, the story is more complicated than this, but let's just say they find Yahima on a um, like abandoned ship that's been like stuck in time because um, one of the people from the Sons of Adam trap them there. We're going to use they, them pronouns for Yahima because um, Yahima doesn't say which pronouns that they use. Um, and the other characters use she, hers, but that's them imposing that gender on them. So yes, they find Yahima, essentially kidnap them, 
take them back to um, Letty's home because they hope that Yehima can translate the Book of Names, which is a book of spells. But before that happens, one tick punches them across the face to knock them out because um, there's this been a spell cast on them that they can't um, actually speak. And so whenever they open their mouth, they make like this really loud jarring siren noise. So tick knocks them out. And then later, because Montrose doesn't want Yehima um, to translate the book of spells, he slits their throat at the end mm-hmm. of the episode. And Yehima's been on the screen for something like five minutes or 10 minutes. Yeah. It's um it's a really disturbing scene and I think I think once you finish the full season it makes you even more angry that the scene is even included. Mm-hmm. Um because I think I think when you first see it you're kind of like what is going on like why did this happen? Um and I think the trope of like killing off native characters in particular is like already tired and like very violent in and of itself, but I I would have thought the first show like this that they were going to do something like that it would have meant something like in the larger scheme of the show. I mean, it really doesn't. And perhaps that's like a laziness on the writing staff's part, but I also think it's indicative of the fact that the show kind of leaves a lot of loose ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it's hard to decide like whether or not like Hima is just like a casualty of the fact that the show was just kind of sloppy in general, um, or if there's like a, a very particular kind of issue of how the show is thinking about indigeneity in relationship to blackness. Yeah, I don't know. I just had a lot of issues with like the fact that he was the only indigenous character we see on the show. And for that to be the representation of like their encounter with black people, I think was uh, unfortunate to say the least, especially because I think that there's so much engagement with like these white people and like whether or not these white people recognize or claim them. And I thought it would have been interesting to see like what alternative relationships were being built with people outside of whiteness. Yeah, so I don't know. I was a little disappointed in that. And not to like romanticize relationships between like Black people and like non-Black Indigenous people because those relationships are complicated historically and like like Indigenous people have owned owned slaves at different periods of time and like, you know, Black slaves have been used it throughout settler colonial projects. But I think I think overall that that relationship could have been demonstrated with more nuance. Um, and I think we got none of that by just like killing off Yehima, especially when like it takes so long for all the white people to die. <laughs> like I just, I don't think um, it really makes a lot of sense to me that they would be discarded like that. But I think that throughout the show, we get a sense that certain characters are easily discarded compared to others, which is something I am still kind of sitting with. Yeah. Yeah, I do think Yehima was Ali's the character Yima was like a big missed opportunity to explore yeah just interactions between indigenous people and black people and when Yima was first introduced I was like really excited and interesting because I thought that um the show was going to explore the U.S.'s relationship with colonialism with the rest of the Americas and the Caribbean as well as systemic racism on well it's not U.S. land it's stolen land but yeah. in the United States, as well as like US imperialism through the Korean War, because which is a much needed conversation because the trans-elected slave trade included the Caribbean. And when you look at like historical documents, um, there was a lot of like relations um, <laughs> between the Caribbean and um, the United States, whether it was between like slaves escaping or moving to and from like Haiti and Louisiana or um, enslavers trading between islands and yeah so that could have been like another dimension to the show's critique on racism which to be honest is like very simplistic mm-hmm. um, it's like people, yeah right <laughs> the show's take on racism is that white racist people are mean and then they get killed because they're mean and that's it and then the black people killed them were meant to be like happy about that which just falls back and doesn't talk about the complexities of systemic racism, the web that is like systemic, institutional, like certain colonialism, US imperialism, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, all of those. Yeah, I think, I think it's vision. I think the show, I mean, we're gonna talk about it a little bit later, but I think the show's vision of like what reparations or like some kind of liberation looks like, I think are very short-sighted in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And I think, I think they're a little bit too invested in thinking about power as like completely color-coded to the point like at the end when they kind of decide to like ban all white people from like binding magic and it's like 
well like that's that's a cute gesture but I don't necessarily know <laughs> that was I don't cute. I don't know long term like what whether or not that's going to be enough to undermine like certain kinds of structures um and we also can't act like like people aren't like non-white people haven't been used um to facilitate white supremacist projects so I think it was just kind of like oh you got a lot more enemies than you think potentially and I think that it just didn't seem like they had thought it through completely mm. like black people can be agents of white supremacy as well even if you look at like a contemporary example SARS the um, police unit in Nigeria that is killing Nigerian civilians like those are black people but that's still a remnant of British colonialism because actually the British trained found out um, later that the British government um, had been involved in training SARS policemen so yeah. like all skin folk ate king folk. <laughs> <laughs> getting, rid of, getting rid of like white people's magic doesn't do much. So yeah, but thinking back to Montrose um, and colorism and queerness, we have to talk about Ruby as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I do want to note that like Misha Green technically did apologize about oh, killing yeah. off Yahima. And I think that that is an interesting piece to bring up because she doesn't apologize about the decision she made with Ruby's character um and so I think that it's important to note that I think that she is apologizing I think for the backlash rightful rightfully that she received for the way she represented this indigenous character or failed to represent this indigenous character who killed like almost within like a couple minutes of appearing on screen but the decisions with Ruby particularly in relation to like Ruby and Letty being sisters and one being like dramatically lighter than the other um, in her, in the interview, she basically is kind of just like, oh, like, I don't think the relationship is about colorism. Like, I don't think I should have to like make every relationship about that or whatever. And I was very disappointed in the fact that she wasn't willing to like critically engage that conversation. Yeah. And the, and the neglect is shown on screen because colorism may not be a defining factor in the relationship between Letty and Ruby, but it certainly <laughs> shapes it. Yeah. Yeah, like you can't stop external forces. And I thought that the show was going to address it because it's glaringly obvious and people were did have the critiques, those critiques at the start. But I was like, oh, it's early days. This is me on like episode three. I was like, it's early days, I'll get to it. And I was left waiting. For weeks <laughs> on the end. <laughs> you were just sitting there, you're like, oh, I know it's colorism apart. <laughs> I know they're going to bring it up. No, they're not. They're not going to bring it up. Is that what you want? Because you're not going to get it. You're never going to get it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the way they treat Ruby as a character is heinous because between her and Montrose, the writers were like, it's either you're you're dark (laughs) and queer or you're happy. Pick one. (laughs) I think think what also stood out to me the most is that they're also the most kind of isolated characters. Like they're like both social pariahs to a certain extent. Like Mm. um, I think in the beginning we meet Ruby and she's embraced. Like she's the singer and like, She's this kind of like beautiful, like powerful presence. Yes. But I think as the show goes on, she kind of becomes so removed from the black community at large. Um, and even just like the main cast. I don't know. And it's just, it's just really interesting the way that like she in particular is, is shown to like kind of um buddy up to whiteness and like the particular kind of manifestation of that being Christina, um, mm-hmm. and like white power becoming like this like thing that um Ruby kind of gets caught up in. I don't know, I just think it's interesting that that she's the figure of betrayal for yeah. like so much of the, the show. I think it's interesting to me. Yeah, I don't know. I think there were a lot of odd decisions being made. Um, I also just am always kind of, I think a little nervous about the ways that like interracial couples tend to be used in, I... in this kind of context too. Um, I don't know. I wasn't a fan of Christina and Ruby. And I didn't I... understand the relationship and I didn't buy it. I was like, why, why would they like each other? what's what is their the of this attraction <laughs> I don't know I mean throughout the show I was like a lot of these relationships have like are held together by like a thread like really nothing is holding together <laughs> like really like holding on for dear life like mm. like your edges are giving out type of situations because even with Letty and Tick it's like like why do you like him why why does he like her I don't like like can you can you tell me like at the end, like if we had a checkpoint and it's like, oh, what is the basis of that relationship? I don't know. 
um what's it called compulsory heterosexuality that's <laughs> i don't know it's just so so forced and i feel like i've i've seen characters on screen and been like oh i feel i feel this chemistry between the two of them i feel this strong kind of drive for these characters to be together and that they want to be together um but i didn't really get a sense i feel like tick's passion for letty kind of came out of nowhere and i feel like when we first see it it's mostly kind of just like his frustration with like her dancing with other people. I don't know, they have like a really weird dynamic. And like when we get to Ruby and Christina by that point, I think we're kind of just so used to relationships like being flimsy <laughs> that like, we're kind of just like, all right, this is happening now. Yeah, I never bought it. I was like, what is going on here? Especially cause like their relationship starts non-consensually as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because from what I remember, Christina appears to um, Ruby at first as William, mm-hmm. um, who is this. The same way that Ruby turns into a white woman, Christina is able to turn into this white man because um, she has like this potion. And so um, she tricks Ruby into sleeping with her as this white man. Ruby wakes up as a white woman, doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then um, they, there's this transformation scene that's very, very gory. I like it. <laughs> Jordan doesn't. <laughs> I hate those transformation scenes because she's just like really walking out of her skin. Like, no, it doesn't make any sense. Also, who's cleaning that up? You tell me you're leaving behind sacks of white woman flesh just all around, like in department stores, on the street, at the club at funerals like you just get to take off your skin and nobody's gonna be like where is all this white flesh coming from like who's cleaning that up that's <laughs> my think, question i think that's the difference between the aries and the aquarius it's me like oh <laughs> this is interesting <laughs> i was like this is some really cool effects and you're like who's cleaning that shit up <laughs> like who's cleaning it up like i don't know i feel like logistically it didn't make sense to me i don't know i also think that in terms of like it being something that could happen like subtly and like in this magical kind of way I don't know it was weird to me how how brutal and graphic it was and on one hand I I think it made it more powerful I guess like the way that you think about this transformation but I also think it wasn't that powerful at all (laughs) because yeah yeah um I don't know I think what Ruby does with whiteness is like is not interesting to me um like she's very mean to like the other black girl at her job while she's like the white manager um and like she like sodomizes her boss with a heel as like cardi b is playing wait i forgot about that (laughs) i forgot about the cardi b yes because so like we already said that like everybody like everybody's like jordan peele's son at this point but like in general i think everybody's super invested in this kind of like black horror using like unexpected black music like in certain contexts as like the new trademark so like throughout the show there like is music that doesn't fit the time period in which the show is set Mm -hmm. um and there's some moments where I find it interesting and other moments where it's like okay now sometimes we can have too much fun actually what this is off topic because we do need to get back to Ruby but what I didn't like well, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but when they had like spoken word or speeches mm-hmm. played over um, people doing different things. Yeah. Um, for instance, they had, I think they had an excerpt of For Colored Girls playing over Ruby escapading as a white woman. I hated that. <laughs> I did oh not like that. <laughs> Which I think is a brilliant idea in theory. Um, but just... it, the way that they used it, <laughs> I, I interpreted the goriness as being like, there's a cost or there's a deeper issue to between Ruby transforming into this white woman. Mm-hmm. It's not all sunshine and roses. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like it makes it concerning, but okay. So what have we gained from Ruby? Yeah. I just think it's just so short-sighted in my opinion. I think Ruby's vision, like once she like becomes white, it's pretty much just like, Oh, I want to get my dream job and I want to talk down to the black girl at work and like, attack my boss but there's pretty much like nothing else like this I, I don't know her character's motivations are kind of confusing to me to be honest yeah and I think by the end of it I'm kind of just like I don't know I think I think she deserved a lot more as a character because I think when we first meet her I was so excited about Ruby yes. like I was so excited about her yeah 
I don't know. And I don't feel like we got any of her interiority. I think we only got her in relationship to Letty or or like in relationship to her white self and then her relationship to Christina. But I don't feel like we got a lot of sense of like who she is, what she cares about, what drives her. Yeah, I don't know. Because all of her relationships seem so strained. Absolutely. And I think the show really treated her as disposable, quite literally in the way they just killed her off off screen. That was disrespectful. <laughs> it was very disrespectful. And it and it's revealed in like passing dialogue. If you're not paying attention, you'd miss it. Like you could finish the series and be like, okay, so where's Ruby? <laughs> because Christina just mentions it off the top because what happens is in case you don't remember, Christina uses that potion that turns Ruby into a white woman to turn herself into Ruby, mm-hmm. then Ruby um, while um, Tick and the gang are mm-hmm. <laughs> Tick and the gang are um, trying to foil um, Christina's plot at the end. Yeah. Um, and then it's revealed that Ruby has been Christine for the past few hours. And then she mentions, like, really nonchalantly, yeah, I killed your sister to Letty. And I was like, huh? For a second, I didn't believe it. Because it just happened mm-hmm. so quickly. I was like... What? I just was so shocked. I was like, you're telling me that a scene, that we wouldn't have gotten that scene? Because to me, it's like, even if they were going to kill her off, which I think is, like, personally not the most interesting narrative choice, but even if they were going to do it, it's like, why not like let us see Ruby coming to terms with the fact that like she wants to side with her sister and not this white woman like why do we not get that moment for her the scene we get of like Letty Letty and like Ruby I guess quote-unquote making up like when she gives her um the vial of like Christina's blood um is that supposed to be Christina already yes it was at that point yeah so if it's Christina already it's like I don't know I think I would have liked to have seen how Ruby came came to her decision especially because when when she talks to Letty she doesn't she still seems like like her relationship to Letty is is very strained and like she doesn't completely trust her and so I think it would have been nice to see like how she has that arc but no I feel like we don't we don't get that at all it's just it's just Ruby dies and like we don't get to see it I also think it's just annoying for like this white woman to get to enact violence on black people in a black woman's body (laughs) like I don't know I think it's like very disturbing um yes yes. because it's just like we're just like watching her throw Letty off a building and like it's it looks like Ruby so like visually like the imagery is of like these black women like like fighting and these like sisters fighting but it's like this white woman is using Ruby as a vessel plus size and one being thin because yeah maybe that frames this as well yeah I don't know I think I think it's just really unfortunate and I think that there are a lot of ways even in like her scenes with Christina and just how she's written over the course of the show I think Ruby's character is like a very good example of like how colorism shows up in like narratives in ways that are not always just about like the like comparing them to like a light-skinned character per se because I think I think with Ruby it's almost bigger than her relationship with Letty because I think from I think from the beginning we kind of um there are just like these little kind of decisions that are made in terms of her narrative that demonstrate that like that they're not really imagining much for her um and that her characterization is just very limited you know it's, it's unfortunate because I think that the actress is very talented and I thought that the pilot um the pilot might be my favorite episode because because the pilot had me for a little bit like he had me um <laughs> And every episode after that, I was kind of just like, yeah, where are we going? Like, what's going on? Mm. Yes, I don't know. I feel like the Ruby we got in the pilot, I was very excited about. And by the end, I feel like we were kind of robbed. Yeah, we were meant to have gone on a journey with Ruby throughout the series. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really feel like we did because not many of the characters were that developed anyway. Yeah. We supposedly go on this journey with this character. And then, yeah, for her to be killed off screen like that as if she's some extra yeah my character's like no she had a whole subplot to herself yeah um I think one of the like parts of the show where I think I was most kind of moved actually was um there's a scene I think maybe in the last episode when Tick's grandmother or great-grandmother Hannah talks about how like the fire was like her rage how like the Mm -hmm. fire that was burning around her was like her rage and that she just needed to like harness it um and I thought that that was a really interesting scene and I think there are moments in the show where I think it's asking interesting questions about what it means for Black people to be angry. 
which I am interested in. And I think that we should talk about more, uh, especially because I think that sometimes a lot of mainstream politics tend to lean towards like black anger management. <laughs> I think yes. um, I think that it was interesting to see how willing the show was to like have black characters say like, I'm angry or like, I hate y'all <laughs> or something mm -hmm. like that, which I thought was um, probably one area on the show where I was like actually kind of excited, even though I was surely disappointed. <laughs> I was excited at first. Yeah, because yeah, I was gonna say what the black people do with that anger. It feels very unfulfilling because they basically just kill all the violent. No, they violently kill a lot of the racist white people, which was fun at first. I'm not gonna lie, they had me at first. I was like, ooh, because because <laughs> the, the running joke of horror movies is like the black person always dies first. And yeah. so to see all these racist white people get their comeuppance, yes, it was satisfying. But after episode what? two or three, mm -hmm. it got tired and it's like, okay, well, that's not gonna solve the systemic racism that these black people have to live with daily, one. And number two, what about the more implicit forms of racism? Mm -hmm. The ones that you can't physically harm? Or white people who aren't like outwardly horribly racist to you, they do it in other ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, address that. Yeah, I don't know. I think there were a lot of weird moments where I was kind of just like, okay, like, what are the stakes here? Like, yeah. what are they really, what are they really thinking the stakes are? I don't know. And I think at first I thought magic was power in the show, right? Like, this is all about getting power. But I'm not really sure because I think that like, even at the point where like, they ban white people from binding magic anymore, it's like, okay, they don't have magic anymore, but they still have power. Yeah, they still have white supremacy. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of just like, I mean, because the reality is like most of the white, like lots of white characters on the show were never harnessing any magic and we're doing a perfectly good job ruining your life. Oh, so yeah. it was like, so it's like, to me, it's like, oh yeah, like Christina's like, I think a really like dramatized version of like this kind of evil white woman who's like always in competition with like white men who won't recognize her. But I think I don't know to me I think because it's so dramatic I wonder if it like takes us away from I think more like structural critiques because I think that like everyone's not a magician like everybody doesn't have magic and so it's kind of like to focus on like a group of, of white magicians or like people who have this magic in their family that is so exclusive that like even other white people aren't a part of it I don't know I think it kind of shrinks the project in some ways yeah yeah, because I'm not anti-violence by any means. Some people need to get their ass beat. <laughs> like, I, that's not politics, period. Some people really need, they need to be touched. And that's all I'm going to oh, say. As we say back in London, chat shit get banged. But I do think like there's ways you can use violence that so that it is productive. Mm -hmm. And I think <sighs> reactively harming people who have harmed you, that's not going to bring you the satisfaction that you need every single time yeah no I, mean, I also think oh what were you saying no I'm just saying like that's not going to bring you um the catharsis the healing that you actually need yeah yeah I think what disturbed me the most about some of the violence on the show was how it was so short-sighted in certain moments where I felt like the decision to be violent wasn't it wasn't strategic and it wasn't really thinking about how it would affect other black people on the show like I think it was very kind of like my individual feelings in this particular moment I don't necessarily know if it's fair to expect every black character to like carry um community or like to have to like consider other people but to me I feel like if you're interested in like liberation or interested in like freedom in a broader sense then like to some extent you have to be thinking about more than just yourself and I think that with Ruby in particular like when she gets her whiteness and like, you know, she she brutalizes her boss. And like, I think at first she kind of like, oh, wow, this is so powerful, like via this like sexually violent kind of super graphic scene. But I think, I don't know, I think the more I thought about it, it was just kind of like, okay, but Ruby has the ability to go back and forth between being a white woman and being a black woman and like her decision to attack this man as a black woman, right? Knowing full well that like the only black woman who works in the store is like Tamra at the time and that this white man is gonna have experienced something traumatic 
and want retaliation. To me, it felt like she hadn't even considered or didn't care, which I think is more likely what it was because she didn't seem to like Tamara very much. But it seemed like she didn't care at all about how that would have put Tamara in danger. This man, like, I mean, we already know why people are like terrible at cross-race identification. So it's like, regardless of like what is different between the two of them, like all he knows is like he was attacked by a black woman um, when he thought he was in a room with a white woman. And fundamentally, like, if you know that like this place is not super integrated and there's only one other black person there, like, how do you, how do you make a decision like that without considering how it's going to affect this other girl? Like, is it worth it if he, if he goes on after and like retaliates against her? Um, especially when we already see that like the boss is being inappropriate and like sexually violent towards Tamara in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I feel like we need to wrap up. So a question I want to ask, I want to end on a positive note, because we've done a lot of drama. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, despite us disliking the show, maybe overall it's a good thing because at the end of the day, um, a Black woman, because um, also, I don't know if you've mentioned this, but Lovecraft Country was written by majority Black women, I think, but there was definitely a lot of Black women in the writer's room. Yeah, the so, show, the yeah. show to be clear, not the book. The show. Oh yeah, the book was written by a white man. And actually neither of us have read the book, but I've read the Wikipedia article that goes with it. Um, and there's a lot of differences between the book and a TV series. So I'd be interested in reading the book. But anyway, I'm thinking, even if we didn't like the show, is it good overall that a Black woman was given like, this big budget to do this HBO show. And if she failed, then that's okay because black women should be able to try things and fail. And yeah. especially in a creative space. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the like mediocrity thesis, right? Like the whole like black people should be able to be mediocre too um, <laughs> type of thing. And I get that and I'm not like, and I think there are critiques to be made of like all the like black excellence discourse too. So I'm not super interested in like those kinds of dichotomies of like black people should be able to be bad or black people should always be amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, I think the silver lining is mostly that I think it's just a reminder that black women are not here to save you and black <laughs> women have their own problems and they show up in their work. <laughs> because I think that like, I don't know, I think sometimes we can be super kind of like dogmatic or like essentialist about like oh, like work from this type of person is gonna have this type of politics. And it's like, actually caring about black women's work is gonna require us to like really pay attention to who they actually are and to like what their work is actually doing and being like, you know what girl, like you got some issues, but that's okay because like you're a person and like people have their stuff. But like, I think for me, I think it's more interesting to like talk about Misha's body of work and being, being able to like critique her based on like, on herself, like comparing her to herself. Um, and so I think that's the most exciting thing about her being able to do more stuff is just to get to see different different content from her and being able to say, you know what, like Underground was better than this, but like, you know, we maybe we wouldn't have known that like, you know, these were such like holes or like issues in her writing until we had gotten this other kind of show to be like, you know what, I don't, I don't know if this is working. Mm. Yeah, I do think there's a lot of pressure on Black stories to be exceptional because we have so few of them. They're the ones we, ha we have, we have to like or have to be good. Uh, and I think that can be very damaging for like a writer or any creative to have yeah. a lot of pressure on you to deliver um, and knowing that you're going to have like this lens on you, especially when you think of like Black Twitter. You know people are going to be picking apart yourself purely because it's Black. So I... You know what? I'm kind of here for black mediocrity, but then again, <laughs> at what cost? Because oh God, you say cool. that, yeah, you say that, and then and then it comes out. It's true. And you wish no, it didn't. <laughs> I'm thinking about the the Chris Rock. Um, Chris Rock once said, um, "You know that we will have racial inequality when black people can be mediocre." Mm -hmm. But black mediocrity is Lena Waif. It's Tyler Perry. It's <laughs> names because there's a list at this point <laughs> you got your love crop countries you got who was another black person that's been making some media? oh kenya barris oh child i could like let's wrap up because lord knows <laughs> i could talk all day about the kenya barris industrial complex that man has no it is an industrial problems. complex as well they won't let us be <laughs> that man has problems 
problems. Like actual problems. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Um, so, I yeah, I feel like black people should be able to make mistakes with their work. And I think it's also yeah. which black people are allowed to make mistakes and which black people are being given a platform at this time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm allowed to make mistakes, but at the same time, I want to watch good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's just like, I would like more interesting mistakes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think people are making the same mistakes. Yeah. Um, I would like like to see people really taking like actual risks. Um, I don't know. And in some ways, I think the show did take risks, but I think, I don't know if it was calculated enough about the risks it took. Um, and I think it kind of just threw everything in and was like... Let's see what, what comes out. I don't know. And I think it was some bad, some very bad and, and some good moments. But um, overall, I think I'm still kind of like unsure how to feel about it. Yeah, like a good idea isn't enough is the execution. You gotta see. Yeah. Per. Thank you for listening. To continue this conversation, check out our reading list for this episode on our link tree, where you'll find all the sources we read to shape this discussion. Please leave a comment on whatever platform you're listening to, because we'd love to hear your thoughts. Keep up with us on Instagram and Twitter at at LoseYourSister, and email us at LoseYourSister at gmail.com. We hope you'll be back for our next episode in two weeks. Bye. Bye.